Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Borinaf of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello everyone and welcome back to the On Air podcast. You know, last week was very jam-packed with lots of little things going on that we were able to talk about. This week we decided to kind of catch up on something that we glossed over a little bit and do one of our kind of deep dives into a topic. Um, On the 28th of June, um, the British Royal Family released their annual financial reports, which I mean, I'm sure you're all on the edge of your seat thinking financial reports this is going to be an exhilarating thrill ride um but we are actually going to take that and talk about something that I think we've always wanted to talk about but that has just taken us a while to get here which is the finances of the British royal family the history of royal finances is similar to the history of kind of democracy and the balance of power in that it was a gradual shift over centuries I'm not going to go into all of those shifts Um, But I think we can kind of talk about some big moments that happened that changed the way that the the funding relationship worked. So if we go all the way back to Willie McConker, or as I have written in my notes, Willie Conk. Willie Conk. (laughs) Big fan fan of Willie Conk. We love him over here. We talk about him surprisingly often. When he took over and um, uh, conquered uh, England, he owned all the land as the new guy in town and of course he gave some bits out to his friends to his family um but then he was able to kind of keep the rest and use that to generate a revenue thing things like taxes or import duties or rent or you know that kind of thing he was able to make money through that and I think that relationship broadly speaking continued for centuries over the, the centuries, the kind of the distribution of land differed. So they might, you know, obviously very famously with Henry VIII confiscating land from the churches and, so, you know, they would confiscate or somebody got their head cut off. Then the king would be like, oh, well, I'll just take all of their property. Or um, they gave out areas if they wanted to bribe somebody or if they wanted to reward somebody for something impressive that they'd done. So the the boundaries and the amount of land that the monarch had uh, did differ over those centuries. But I think that you know that relationship broadly continued for you know for a very long time obviously we talk a lot with royals about this idea of the crown and nowadays the crown is like the government the judiciary the monarch and they're all kind of their own thing they work together but they're their own thing and back then I think those lines were blurrier and so the money that the king had as the crown, it was his money, but it was the country's money. It funded the government. It might fund wars. It funded palaces and banquets and buying furniture. So I think the reason that the understanding this history matters is that when we get later down the line into talking about how the royals are funded now, a lot of that money we can clearly say now is public or it's private or this is where it comes from. But when you actually trace it all back to its source several hundred years ago, there was really no differentiation between the public and the private money. It's harder to to differentiate the money now when you look at like the original source, because at one point in time, it was all going to the same pot. When I was researching this, I was really surprised, like how much of it, like deep in my brain, I knew. And I just, I didn't realise as a child, I had learned so much about ancient royal finances. Oh, I remember doing this when I was eight. Like, how is that a thing I know? I don't know. It's like you said, it's that kind of um, 
almost like a confusion back back in the day because it was all going to the same place so you know it was you know in quotation marks the crown estate was the country because the king will was raising taxes for everyone not just his tenants and um if the king came around and went yeah I want your house you kind of just had to give it to him (laughs) you couldn't be like no I have Scottish rights that didn't exist um and I think like you said it's really hard to make that differentiation between what um was the monarchs and what was the countries um and I think you know you can clearly see that for an exceptionally long time everything was the monarchs because the monarch ruled the country and he ruled the government and he ruled the had all the, he had the military <laughs> they were in charge they were the boss it is it, it's important to talk about it because not just because it sets the scene but because it also does really still matter today because a lot of these pots of money might be legally private but when you actually go back you realize that they were generated from about 800 years of the royal the royals taking or the royal family the monarch whoever taking money from people it's still something that is like a cloud over the conversation today i would say um, yeah it's the hardest part to like sort of disentangle but yeah that's so that arrangement carried on broadly speaking for a few hundred years like 800 years um uh, you know just a casual 800 years <laughs> as i say there were there were attempts to curb the royals ability to spend their money um and the way that the financial system worked um i think especially as we started to see more of a differentiation between the monarch and the government so like after um we briefly flirted with being a republic um that didn't really work out but when they, we brought them back we were like maybe we should make a few changes um and so yes you know there were parts of the the monarch's income that they kind of lost or um there were controls that were put on what they were able to spend there were a few people who suggested more drastic changes in government but that never really went anywhere so there it wasn't the case to say that it was all exactly the same for 800 years it, the broad arrangement was but there were people for long periods of time which were kind of saying maybe we should do something different with this system maybe this doesn't actually work or maybe we shouldn't just let this random guy decide everything but I would say that the biggest change really happened in kind of the uh, sort of 18th century um, so there had been several generations of royals who had built up massive debts and so when George III took the throne in the mid-1700s, uh, the Crown Estate, which was the portfolio of land that we've been talking about that, that was still under the control of the monarch, um, it brought in less money than it cost to run the government and the royal household, because that's what the Crown Estate was always intended for. As we mentioned earlier, it was kind of, it wasn't just going towards the monarch's lifestyle, it was also going toward, toward the running of the state. And so essentially, he was the monarch was constantly in personal debt. Which is quite fun. Which is quite fun, yeah. Long time um, monarch to be in debt. Yeah, always. But George III, before he went bad, um, presumably, I don't know actually, um, he agreed to give the Crown Estates revenue to the government. Um, and in exchange, they would take over running the costs of kind of the administration of the state. They would give the king an allowance, and that allowance would be used to run his household. Um, but you know, it was kind of this exchange. I'll give you this massive portfolio of land that isn't currently doing me any favours and you use it and all of the other money that you have through taxes and things that you've taken over from me over the years. Um, you use that to run the state and then you give me a bit of money. And so I'm not cur- I'm not in debt, but as an exchange of that, I don't get access to what could potentially be a very lucrative portfolio of land. 
didn't really help him very much because he was still constantly in debt and they had to keep upping the amount of, of his allowance to avoid embarrassment of him getting further and further into debt. So it didn't massively help him. But um, again, broadly speaking, that is the relationship that has carried on for the last 250 years, more than. Part of the reason some of the debts were up so big was not just because monarchs kept deciding they were going to go to war to take over countries, <laughs> but also they would, you know, like the monarch would bet with... Yes land and part of the country they'll be like oh I bet I can beat you in this jousting match and I bet you Normandy and they'd lose and then they'd have to give Normandy to some other guy part of the issue was coming from the fact that even though there were sort of little changes being made like you said after um uh the minor republican era we had after the you know even after the Magna Carta there were little rules being put in place but the people putting those rules into place were also aristocrats. So they yeah. were sort of doing it for themselves. And it wasn't until, like you said, the Georgian era, when it kind of built up to a point where it was mm-hmm. it was unfeasible that the country would continue and would manage to ever get out of it if it carried on the way it was going. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at the same period in history kind of across the world, monarchies and other countries, sort of, the ones that fell, often fell because they were building themselves up into the sort of massive debt because they were just being lavished or they were being you know making bad choices financially and then that's why you ended up with this sort of domino effect of monarchies just kind of crumbling uh in the sort of 18th 19th century yeah for sure I think this is actually a really significant shift and a really smart one and possibly the reason why we still have a monarchy today I hadn't actually realized it was that important but you know it's possibly the reason that (laughs) the monarchy in Britain has survived, whereas it hasn't in places like France, for example, or Russia. They made a decision in the 1700s to address that financial balance, you know, kind of like being a trophy wife, I guess. Like he, <laughs> George III was the ultimate trophy wife of like, he got his little bit of allowance and yeah, it might've been better if he could get access to everything, but he, in exchange for that, he didn't actually have to worry about making any of the money or going out to work or doing, you know, he could just worry <laughs> about paying for his parties and all of that sort of thing. And also at the time there was still kind of, it wasn't quite as it is today. You know, they did up his allowance. They still wanted to kind of make sure that he was able to afford a very luxurious lifestyle and um, they didn't want the monarch to be seen to be in debt. Um, so there was kind of, it seems like everybody was quite reasonable, really. Um, yeah, it's never happened before. It never happens. So it kind of worked out best for everybody. And I think is there's a reason that it hasn't changed drastically for 250 years because quite obviously it works. Um, and, you know, there were tweaks again, like originally when this portfolio was handed over the crown estate, it didn't include the crown lands in Scotland. And so later down the line, the crown lands in Scotland were taken by the government as well, or given over, I should say. So, you know, there have been changes, but broadly speaking, it's the relationship that Charles has with the the government today. And I don't think that that would still be happening if it wasn't a system that worked. It's led to a kind of system that shouldn't work, but does. It reminds me a lot of the democracy conversation we had in the Cones of Power episode about like, this is a system that has been built up over a thousand years of British history in all of its forms and so it's been it's been molded by experience to work the way that it does it's not just something that was created randomly and and um you know doesn't actually work 
so I think the, largely speaking, there are lots of different ways that the royals make money and we will go through all of them. But I think the most connected way is naturally the money that is received by government, because that is kind of the relationship that started with King George III and has continued you know, through Elizabeth and King Charles III today. They've all continued here. We give you the crown estate and in exchange you give us some money and you run the government. We don't have to think about that. We just run ourselves. Um, and that's the arrangement that you know works for everybody. Basically, it used to be the case that the monarchy received different pots of money from different government departments, which were all supposed to be used for different purposes. And basically the government had to confirm that arrangement kind of like every year. And so in 2011, they changed the system and um, that is what we have now. It's called the Sovereign Grant. So the monarch still gives the government the crown estate, essentially. And then what the government does is they work out 15% of the total income of the crown estate from two years prior. <laughs> Very confusing. <laughs> um, and whatever that figure is, they give the equivalent amount to the royals from the treasury. So from their general money that they make from everything like income tax and council tax and all that sort of thing. And they give it all to the monarch and then they can choose how they want to divide it up. So it gives them flexibility, but it also means that there's a standard formula to decide what they get every single year. And so the government doesn't have to constantly be reviewing it. So it, it's less time consuming and um, for them and also avoids anybody having to have a conversation about royal funding if they can just have the same relationship forever that it means that they don't ever have awkward conversations in government where a labor politician's like well now we're reviewing it how about we get rid of it entirely it's a system that makes total sense to me i mean the 15 percent was just a random figure that was that was thought that was oh this will be about the right amount when they made it in 2011 by making it seem like it's attached to something it kind of makes it seem like oh well, we're not deciding the amount of money that the monarchy gets it's attached to the specific figure that we put into law I just think there is a lot of misunderstanding about it from the general public of thinking, you know, and I've seen this argument so many times that like, well, the crown estate belonged to them originally and they voluntarily gave it over and they get a little bit of it back. Um, so it's really just their money. And that's that's not the case. It is taxpayer funding that is going towards the monarchy. Um, it's just arbitrarily tied to this 15% figure. So that confuses things for people. But then I also think on the flip side of it, a lot of people think that the monarchy just goes out with its hand out like Oliver Twist and is like, Give me some more, please. What's he saying? Please, I can have some more. <laughs> Give me some more, please. That's not what he said. Some more, please. <laughs> That's what they think the monarchy's like. And like you said, I think it also works really well for it to be this really, obviously, arbitrary figure. But it is an arbitrary fifteen percent because, like you mentioned, twenty eleven. But if you compare twenty eleven monarchy to the twenty twenty three monarchy, like the amount of working royals has changed, the amount of work they do has changed. We've just had a massive global pandemic, which has massively affected what they can and can't do. And if you were still just handing out identical figures to what was being handed out in 2011, it wouldn't match the needs of the monarchy today. When you do have these real bumper years for the monarchy and they're going to make a bit more of their crown estates, then they, you know, you could be like, actually, they're going to make a bit more money because maybe they did bring in that revenue in their own way. And it gives them, it's almost like, um, like commission. <laughs> When yeah. they do get, they get extra money in like three years time, some belated commission. So, yes, the Sovereign Grant funds the official expenditure of the monarch. Uh, so that includes a lot of different things, but it, you know, it includes things like property maintenance of their official properties like Buckingham Palace. It includes travel, 
that's official travel, but also for the main lines with the King and Queen and the, the Wales family, um, it also includes travel between their residences. So it doesn't include like if they drop George off at school, that's not funded. But if they went from Kensington Palace to Windsor for a holiday, you know, for their long weekend or whatever, um, then that would be that would be paid for by the, uh, the government. Um, it pays for things like the running of the royal household, so their staff, but also, you know, the computers that they use to work on. Um, and then public engagements, which is a little bit fuzzier, um, <laughs> but it includes things like garden parties, state banquets, so the food at a state banquet, for example, anything that is kind of not military related and is also directly connected to the monarchy. So, for example, if the president of the United States came to visit us, his hotel would be funded by the government but his food at the state banquet would be funded by uh, the monarchy, by the Southern Grand, um, or Trooping the Colour. You know, the royals' cars to Buckingham Palace that day might be funded by the um, by the Southern Grand, by the, the monarchy, but the actual sort of transport for the military to get to London, that would be funded by the government. When I was looking at uh, the questions, so we asked some people if they had any questions, and there was a few about, like, who actually gets the money. and it do, we don't well <laughs> um, <laughs> the accounts in the UK don't break down who actually receives funding um it only funds official things so it's not the case that like you know Prince Michael is getting taxpayer funds that he then spends on sweets but the difficulty is that the money doesn't actually go to the royals and sit in their pocket and they do whatever they want with it it goes to pay for things like petrol or staff salaries. So very little of the actual money of the monarchy is going to end up in any royal's personal pocket um, to be spent you know, by them. Most of it will just completely bypass them, which makes it harder to kind of say who, who sort of gets funding because nobody really gets funding. Somebody like Prince Michael or Princess Michael, they don't get like a little bit of money and they use that however they want or they don't get a little bit of money to go towards their staff or anything like that but they might benefit incidentally so for example if they live in Kensington Palace that's an official occupied palace and so if there were any sort of structural changes that were being made to the homes because they were unfit to live in or whatever that might be funded by the sovereign grant because it's, it's a property that is owned by the monarchy in an official way the primary purpose is for official people who do official duties to, to have the benefit of the vast majority of the money. And that's why we can't have like the Middletons going in official transportation because it's not really intended for them. But there will be people who are not working royals who benefit incidentally just because they are connected to the monarchy. Yeah, I think it's one of the sort of the trickiest parts to to explain and to justify because like you said there's not you know there's not a little document somewhere that says well this year William got 300 pounds to buy new shoes for work you know that's not written anywhere and I'm sure William did get some money you know to you know sort of buy new shoes but you know to sort out the car when the yeah, yeah. oil ran I don't know how cars work well not oil <laughs> ran out he got some money for the car um but it doesn't, it doesn't say that. And Willie, no one went to him and went, here's your £300. Can you take that to mechanic, please, William? They just did that for them. And there is, you know, it does tend to be, for example, if you look at uh, the Platinum Jubilee service, all the roy working royals went in their little cars and all the rest of the royals went in a minibus. Like, there is a difference. And they, they try most of the time to make those differences quite obvious. But then at the same time, you know, like you said, Kensington Palace is home to 
in quotation marks the Wells family but also um you know the Princess Michael of Kent and some staff um you know Windsor Castle is still home to some staff the staff that live there so any work that's done on Windsor Castle is actually benefiting these non-royal people who happen to live there you know um the offices at Buckingham Palace and all the work that's being done there like if Charles and Camilla have sort of not officially said but they've kind of said that they're going to stay at Clarence House you know all this work being done on Buckingham Palace you know it's benefiting people when they have state banquets but there's a lot of that palace that is not used for state banquets and I think you know it's it's really hard to kind of pull out those key facts and I think people get really defensive when you go actually no they should not have been there because that's not okay like I disagree with the concept of the Middletons going in Kate's car to Wimbledon or you know I disagreed when Eugenie went with the Queen and Philip to a Monday Thursday service because she went in a state-funded car Tim and yeah Tim and husband Tim who's always popping up where how is he getting these places in a state-funded car so you know all those times that Tim and his wife go on a trip or you know even you know to an extent someone like Louise and James going with their parents they're not working royals it's highly unlikely they're ever going to be working royals Louise is now an adult in you know legally and she lives in a state-funded house with (laughs) state-funded cars so it's hard to draw that line because no one's going to say actually you can mend all the house apart from Louise's bedroom she's just got to do it herself no one's going to say that but at the same time where do you draw the line because what if Louise lives with her parents until she's an adult and her children live there and their children live there then you're you know funding people who are miles out of the line of succession or line of of importance just because they happen to live in a fancy house people might be thinking well why are we talking about this and why does it matter who gets money and who doesn't and all that sort of stuff but there were rumors before Charles took the throne of I mean there are a million and one rumors about what he wanted (laughs) to do and none of it's happened but um one of the rumors was that he wanted to break this 250 year arrangement and he wanted to keep the crown estate and that he would um uh not have to get an allowance from the government and he didn't do that in the end right rightfully so um because this arrangement is essential for the continuation of democracy in the United Kingdom now that sounds like a big statement but it really is because <laughs> in by giving over the money and getting an allowance this is where the accountability comes from because it means that rather than Charles just being some guy who has an enormous amount of power and has complete control over his finances and can do whatever he wants with them it means that he has to report to the government it means that he um, is being publicly funded in order to do a job as a public representative and so the reason that it matters who gets funding and who doesn't is that kind of there are lots of questions about like somebody like Prince Michael who's had some dodgy business dealings with Russia let's say does that do we have a right to criticize that beyond just a moral level like obviously there's a moral issue with uh, collaborating with sketchy people but are we allowed to criticize that as members of the public because he's a a, you know a royal or are we not and normally it would be very simple to kind of say well he doesn't receive any taxpayer funding so it's none of our business but then some people might argue well he kind of does incidentally because he lives in Kensington Palace and so he might you know if there's somebody puts new plants in the garden and it's funded by the sovereign grant he'll benefit from looking at those lovely plants so this is why it is important because the whole mechanism of accountability from the, for the monarchy comes from the fact that they are publicly funded through this sovereign grant. If we don't know who is actually benefiting um, and who isn't, 
then we don't know who we can criticize and who we can't yeah I think I always think of Peter Phillips milk commercial he did like that comes up all the time and on one hand you're like well he's just a person he just happens to be related to rich people but then also his mum is a working royal who lives in a working royal residence and drives a working royal's car and I'm fairly sure that Peter and his children go and visit her and spend time in her house and her garden so on one hand yeah he's just a normal person making money and we would all do it it's not a lie we would all sell milk to make some money oh yeah um <laughs> like, yeah sign me up but at the other side you know you can see why people will like, actually I don't think I don't personally think it's appropriate well I do but someone might say I don't think it's appropriate yeah um and I can say that because when Peter Phillips has his roast dinner on a Sunday at his mum's house who's paid for that electricity technically me you know and you know it's it's not on the same level as slightly sketchy dealings with Russia but I think particularly there are so many um extended royals who are connected to working royals at the moment you've got you know like the Duke of Kent and the Kent line or Prince Alexander and her descent like there's so many connections through a very small number of working royals there's a lot of people who aren't funded by the sovereign grant officially but will probably benefit from being near the sovereign grant and that's where it's really hard to draw that line for sure so we don't really have an answer for you I suppose as we're talking about some of the things that might be not so good about this arrangement um so at the moment uh the rate is actually 25 percent that they're receiving uh, of the percentage rather than 15 percent because they're doing renovations on Buckingham Palace but even generally speaking the figure it's written in law that the figure is not allowed to drop below the previous year so basically they are I think pretty much the only area of life in the United Kingdom which is legally protected from ever having its budget cut <laughs> I don't think there's anything else in the whole of the United Kingdom that is protected in that way my initial instinct was if the country is experiencing less money so should the royals and so that provision should be taken out and it should mean that the um the if, if we're not getting as much money in our pay pocket they aren't getting as much but then I thought about it and I thought the only thing that would actually be damaged if we did that is the rate of engagements they're able to do or like the opulence of a state banquet so it won't actually hurt the royals themselves because as I mentioned most of this money doesn't ever go into their pocket and there are are sort of guidelines about what they're allowed to spend it on yeah I think you know it's that kind of like oh what do the royals do let's just cut their funding from the taxpayer is always the argument that comes up but as you quite rightly say that doesn't actually pay for the royals to do you know rich people things and it's one of those things like when you see it online you're like I'm not arguing with you about it because it would actually just kill me off but you're wrong and you're so fundamentally wrong it's kind of frustrating this this is why I find it so valuable to be in the royal fandom because I think if I didn't have this knowledge of royals I would immediately look at this situation like in the guardian or whatever and I'd go oh yeah of course the royals deserve to have their funding cut like everybody else that makes so much sense but now because I've been blogging about this for so long I actually know how all of this works and I know that it might sound counterintuitive but it doesn't really benefit the average person on the street to cut that that money while we still have a monarchy. The, the thing is, get rid of a monarchy. But if we have them, I don't really think it benefits us massively to change that that system. And it sounds ridiculous for an anti-monarchist to kind of be like, actually, just let them have the money. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but actually, it's how it works. Um, I think I do think the royals are sensitive in some ways to this kind of conversation um, because 
quite recently, King Charles announced that he was going to forego a windfall of up to one billion pounds that he would have ordinarily received. So it's something to do with wind farms. I don't know. Do you have the details? I just heard it was to do with windmills, but I'm starting to think maybe I got windfall <laughs> and windmill confused as well. <laughs> I also think windmills are like little Dutch um, wooden structures. I think it's a wind farm, like in the ocean. I mean that's that does make more sense than yeah. a windmill, which is what I was, which is why I was wondering how they were making so much money. I was like, I've not seen that many windmills doing that much work. <laughs> I don't know if that's what they're called. The wind, the so, turbines, wind turbines. That's what they're called. <laughs> um, in my head, that's what it was—a nice, a nice lit, big windmill making money, but probably yeah. not. I prefer that. But yeah, no, I think they sold the rights to um, some of their, or they gave the rights to have wind turbines on some of the land that they own because I think people own the, the ocean it's a weird thing I don't know but um they own some of the ocean I think and or something like that uh, anyway long story short it could bring them up to a billion pounds and um that would mean that there would be an associated increase in the amount of money that they received from from the government through the sovereign grant because of that percentage arrangement and also because the figure can't drop it would essentially mean like a permanent rise of a huge amount of money um, that would be going going to the the monarchy, and so Charles has kind of been like, no, 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 you keep it. I'll just stay with the figure that I've got just now because I am so sensitive and I understand and la la la. Um, and I do think it was very smart, but I also think that again, it's not actually hurting their bottom line with it. I'll just carry on with fifty million. That's okay, guys. <laughs> He's not. <laughs> so it's not actually hurting them as such. Um, and also there's a provision in the law, which means that the um, the monarchy can't actually have too much in their reserves at any one time. So, you know, if an organization doesn't spend all of its money, it can put some of it that's left over into reserves to use for a, a rainy day. And um, or they can do it deliberately. So if they're planning a big project, they'll put some stuff aside waiting for that big project. And uh, the royals can't have too much in reserves at any one time. And obviously, given that there's fewer royals than there's been for quite a long time I think that there is no way that they can spend this massive windfall if they did receive it. it a lot of it would end up being in reserves which would then cause a problem because they would be sort of violating that thing in the law they have to spend this money and so actually it was beneficial for him to not take all that money because it doesn't hurt the amount of money he actually gets he knows the monarchy can function on 50 million and so he's going to continue with that um, and also it, it, it means that he doesn't have to worry about the reserves thing. He doesn't have to worry about huge amounts of money coming in that he suddenly has to find a way to spend it. So he can look really sensitive and, you know, aware of what's going on with the public and, try, and you know, in tune with us in our cost of living crisis. But actually, it was a, quite a shrewd decision that was very beneficial for him. Yeah, I saw after the um, this year's of Sovereign Grant report came out, which we will get into later, there was a lot of people being like, ah, oh, Charles just gave up a billion pounds. What an idiot. And I was like, no, actually, <laughs> he's been very smart because if he didn't, then not only would it cause a massive issue this year, but then for the next however many years until we immediately were like, right, this is far too much money. We're giving them on a key, get rid of them. Yeah. Would, I mean, it's not like we've got that much money just floating around casually in the government. Like we're not exactly a highly functioning financial society at the moment. So and it's one of these things where you're like, it, I, it, when you read it, you're like, actually, if Charles, you know, needs more money, why doesn't he just take some of this billion? 
But then if you think about it in terms of the law and what would happen as a result of that, it's the only the only decision he could have made would be to give it up. If he didn't, I would have been like, wow, Charles, you are so much stupider than I thought you were. <laughs> yeah, on earth. yeah, yeah. I mean, they spun it really well because it's the it, as you say, it's the only decision that made sense. And yet he was able to spin it as being something that was done to be in tune with the, the ordinary man on the street. We talked about the official sort of government funding. I think we started off firstly with sort of the public funding that they receive. And there is an area in the public funding which I have called hidden costs because it's not as well defined as like the sovereign grant. So there are small things. So, for example, let's say that the royals go to unveil a new building. The royals will obviously cover their staff time and the travel to the event. Um, but the charity will cover the cost of the plaque <laughs> um, or the local police will cover the costs of the cordons that they set up so that if, you know, members of the public come and visit and want to see the, the royals, uh, they'll set up cordons for safety. And so that will be funded by the local police or the local authority. And these costs can often be quite small. Like there's been loads of freedom of information requests to places and it's been like £400 and most of it was on biscuits. You know, that's that's <laughs> sometimes what we're talking about. But there, it can add up. So there was a very public example of, I think it was in Wales, they were naming a bridge after Charles and nobody wanted it. Um, it was really controversial. And it then became even more controversial because it found out that him going to unveil a bridge that nobody wanted to be named after him anyway cost £30,000. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that is not covered by the sovereign grant, that is covered by like local government budgets and things like that. So that's a cost that is kind of um, not really thought about. And then there's other things. So I mentioned already that like military events, like Trooping the Colour, um, which we wouldn't have to have if we didn't have a monarchy because it is officially the celebration of the, the monarch's birthday. Um, we might have something else, but we wouldn't have Trooping necessarily. That's covered by the government because the royals don't cover the actual military side of things you would have to put in freedom of information requests for every single engagement to be able to find these figures because they're not easily reported. So that's why it's kind of like a hidden cost. And um, if every royal is doing an engagement and every royal is doing two or three engagements a day, that's like 15 engagements a day. And if every single one of those engagements has a £400 plaque and every engagement needs cordons and every engagement needs biscuits and a cup of tea, then before you know it, that £400 plaque is now £2,000 a day. And a lot of that money, not all of it, but a lot of it is coming from the local government or the local authority or, you know, the local council because they are paying for the police and the uh, maybe they're supporting that business or supporting the charity or they're supporting, you know, the sending out, what do you call them, the um, lieutenants. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all of that money at its heart is from the taxpayer, which is why you end up with these massive conflated figures, because no one knows how much anything costs and everyone is just guessing all the time. I think the biggest expenditure in this sort of hidden cost area is security. So the government refused to say how much money goes towards <laughs> security for the monarchy, because apparently that's putting people at risk, which I've always said, unless the figure is zero and actually they're making the entire thing up, it's not putting anybody at risk by saying how much money everybody gets as a collective. You're not even telling us how much one person gets. It's ridiculous. Anyway, that's a different topic. But um, could you imagine if it was zero? Though? They're like, yeah, no, that's the only thing I can that makes sense to me as to being why they wouldn't want to confirm it. But anyway. Estimates are usually somewhere in the region of about 100 million pounds. And then, of course, on top of that, if you have something like um, a coronation, that's going to have all the security for that is also going to be paid for by the government. 
And I think the thing with these, all of these hidden costs really is I don't actually have an issue with them being paid. Things like the plaques and the biscuits and the cordons, you know, the cordons are necessary because they keep the public safe. But what I think I have an issue is with is it's disingenuous when you see those things about like the monarchy only costs this amount of money. And actually, it's really good value for money for everybody because they almost always leave out these hidden costs of things like cordons or a hundred million pounds on security every single year. Yeah, I think, you know, it's like when you look at security, of course, if they need a hundred pound security, I want them to have a hundred pound security. I don't want anything to happen to any of the individual working royals, you know. But then, and it, but it's so frustrating because because we don't know how much it costs. And then you get those figures like, oh, it only costs each individual person 77 pence to run the monarchy. And you know that that's not a true figure. But then, you know, I will go out on a limb and say Republic's figure, who are the, you know, anti-monarchy group, is also not true. They've just plucked that figure out of mid-air. <laughs> They've taken the worst possible figures they can come up with and gone, right, we'll go with that. But if I'm going to use one, if I have to use one, I'm going to have to go for Republics because there is money that I don't know how much it is that is being spent. So I'm going to have to go for the bigger amount. And, you know, I'm not even saying that I need a, you know, the government to write me a letter and say, look, we spend this much on security and this much on biscuits every year. <laughs> I don't need that information. But if you're not going to give it specifically, why don't you say it costs, you know, the average person around £2.50, you know, give a big, you know, give a more honest figure and just, you can make it general. No one's actually going to be fussy whether it's around £2.50 or £2.57. Like, you don't want the monarchy. It's all too much. And if you do want the monarchy, you don't care how much it costs. It's that balance. You're, it doesn't actually affect individual people if you're pretending it's £2.50 or £2.57. So just be, like, somehow less specific but more honest. Less specific but more honest. <laughs> you can't be specific and honest at the same time. Well, it's not, you know. That's not possible. <laughs> now we've talked we've talked about the very much public funding that the, the, the monarchy receives. Now we're moving into the kind of middle area, which is complicated. I'll get to that, but yeah. So we're talking about the duchies, not that kind of duchy, not the duchy that you pass around. <laughs> the you know, not that. Um, we're talking about the duchy of Lancaster and the duchy of Cornwall. These are two portfolios of land and real estates and things. The duchy of Cornwall was created in the 14th century to provide an income for the heir. So it was yeah, just something that would always go from heir to heir and they would use that to be able to have their own money and run their own households and things. Doesn't actually include much of Cornwall. Um, that is a misleading name, um, but you know that's what it is. The Duchy of Lancaster, that did exist as a title before, but it was given to various different people. And then in 1399-1400-ish, um, it was given special status as a property that would pass from monarch to monarch, but it was considered separate to the crown estate. I truly do not know why. It's their little extra boner. Yeah, but it, they decided to randomly separate Lancaster out into its own thing so that um, they would have that and also have the crown estate. So so it meant that when we talked you know, earlier about George III and all of the subsequent monarchs handing over their estate to the government, it didn't extend to these two portfolios of land, the Duchy of Cornwall, and the Duchy of Lancaster, because they had for a very long time always been considered separate things, or they were for the heir rather than for the monarch. So the heir couldn't hand, you know, monarch couldn't hand it over on behalf of the heir sort of thing. Um, they both bring in sort of between 20 to 25 million each year for their respective dukes. 
yeah, so, like, the monarch is the Duke of Lancaster, no matter who the monarch is. So, currently, the Duke of Lancaster is Charles. The Duke of Lancaster used to be the Queen. Before that, it was her dad. She wasn't Duchess of Lancaster. She was Duke. <laughs> we take that one. Everyone's the Duke. Yeah. Um, and then the Duke of Cornwall is the heir. So, it was Charles. It's now William. And I'm going to say private in quotation marks, but this is their quotation marks, private income. So the Duchy of Lancaster or the Privy Purse, because that's how we actually tend to use it in day-to-day language, um, is the monarch's money. So when you see those figures that are like, how rich is King Charles? That's what they're referring to, the Duchy of Lancaster, because that's his money. And similarly, if you see how rich are the Wells family, they're now referring to the Duchy of Cornwall which is significantly bigger than the Duchy of Lancaster. I know, um, Charles downgraded, really. <laughs> you know, he had to went from like a thousand million pounds to like half a thousand million pounds. <laughs> still a lot of money, but significantly less than the Duchy of Cornwall's got. Um, and also, this is completely unrelated, but the Duchy of Lancaster website is so ugly, I just can't get over it. Oh, I'm going to have to look. I went to, I went to both websites, and the Duchy of Cornwall website reminds me of a short bread tin like mm-hmm. something you'd give to your aunt at Christmas and the Duchy of Lancaster reminds me of something that you'd make in year 11 um, computer science it's very basic website isn't it um, and I feel like with 600 odd million pounds in reserves they could maybe have got someone to improve it just putting that one out there if anyone from the Duchy of Lancaster's listening it'll be interesting to see if it changes with um, William and Kate and their mm. snazzy digital team <laughs> they'll be like oh can we make it like multicoloured and- let's have some slow motion videos <laughs> yeah yeah, no, but you're right that it's, it's considered uh, private income. So essentially the royals can spend it how they wish. Um, there are some legal restrictions. So there are like, there are certain things that they can't sell off. But if they want to get a new set of curtains or if they want to go on holiday to Mystique, if that's what, if they want to do something like that, they can spend the duchy money on that if they, if they so choose. Okay. Yeah, this is like the, the clothing mm. money mm-hmm. and is everyone assumes everything is from the sovereign grant when actually you can make your argument about whether or not the Duchy of Lancaster and Duchy of Cornwall are taxpayer money or not but they're not the sovereign grant taxpayer money they're their own little separate massive pots of money which are significantly bigger than the sovereign grant (laughs) yeah yeah for sure so we know we do know that both um the Queen and Charles chose to use quite a bit of this money for thing for official stuff as well and not just for holidays and curtains I don't know why curtains was the <laughs> other example I thought of was like a luxurious personal spend <laughs> curtain like, Ooh, curtain wow curtains and pillows but also this is allegedly where the money comes from that goes towards other members of the family who are not benefiting as much from the sovereign grant so for example uh, Prince and Princess Michael used to get a reduced rate for their rent and that became very controversial naturally uh, and so the queen basically reimbursed that basically paid their full rent and it is alleged that that came from the Duchy of Lancaster or for another example Prince Andrew his allowance which he received from the Queen also allegedly came from the Duchy of Lancaster yeah it's like it is like um like the bank of mum and dad in a way yeah like you know whoever's got the Duchy of Lancaster can hand out however they want and technically we can't really say anything because it's their money but at the same time you know, it's a it's a portfolio of land, and it is essentially it's like a mini crown estate, really, except it's just one little place. Um, yeah, well, I think there have been criticisms of the duchy arrangement. So I think one of the ones that um, 
is talked about quite a lot as the tax situation. So the duchies consider themselves to be what's called a crown body rather than like a corporation. The king and the queen before him both agreed that they would pay income tax, but they don't consider the, the duchies to be a corporation. And so they don't pay corporation tax. There, like, there've been accusations of the use of offshore accounts, which a couple of people asked about. And these are not illegal, but they are potentially unethical. Offshore accounts are often used in money laundering. I don't think the royals are involved in money laundering. Well, <laughs> but you know, but even for legitimate investors, uh, an offshore account is designed to shield companies from taxes in their native country. And so a lot of people argue that it's unfair that the royals are essentially hiding money or trying to find ways to avoid paying tax, whether it's legal or not, it's potentially viewed as being immoral. And I think there have actually been quite a few attempts well into the 20th century to take the duchies from the royals. Um, and like during the in, in interregnum, so the, the period where we didn't have a monarchy very briefly with Oliver Cromwell and all of that, if you learn that in school, they lost them. So I think it's a really interesting area because legally it is considered private funds and they can use it however they want. And so if Kate spends half a million billion trillion pounds on clothing, people will say, well, you know, it's their, and I've said this in the past myself, like what's their private money? They're allowed to spend it however they want. But then you could also argue that these are public assets. They are things that we allow them to have because for a little bit of time they didn't have them and we could end the monarchy at any point and take them back. So they're not, they can't be entirely theirs if we could take them. I don't necessarily think we can extrapolate from what happened with Oliver Cromwell whether or not we would take the duchies off them because on one hand, these are these massive revenue-making um, land portfolios to the extent that William is the biggest landowner in the UK. He's the biggest landlord of the UK, if you want to put it like that, you know, which is bizarre when you think about it. And I can see a situation, particularly in the modern era, where we would abolish monarchy and to make it as smooth as possible, just go, keep your duchies and we'll change their names. They're not called the duchies. They'll be called the, the Lancaster Portfolio you know, or at least keep one of them or some of them. I can see that being a situation, particularly if somehow they were abolished during a Tory monarchy, a Tory monarchy, a Tory government. Um, but I can equally see them going, actually, you don't get to own people and their houses and their land. So we're going to take them. And then you end up with a situation where, yes, the royals are very rich, but a lot of that is from the duchy. So I think it's definitely almost like the most contested issue because we can't really judge based on what Oliver Cromwell did because he was just a bit of a weirdo um and it was a very long time ago <laughs> and I don't think anyone would trust what Oliver Cromwell did to be a nice um instruction manual to follow to set up your own republic it didn't really work mm, no it did not <laughs> it was not a successful attempt yeah I don't know it's a complicated area definitely um as to sort of the status of this funding I think we have a right to criticize because they have to hand over their accounts for these different areas and they consider it to be a crown body so they get protected from certain taxes and things so I think we as a result therefore have a right to scrutinize things like their use of offshore accounts but I don't know if that necessarily extends to like how much Kate has spent on curtains. I don't necessarily need to know that, but I do need to know if they're storing their money in offshore accounts. I think that, so it's kind of like, it is an in-betweeny area. As much as I do think that we would get it if um, we, or at least the Duchy of Cornwall, I think we would get it yeah, if- I think we'd get the Cornwall. <laughs> the Cornwall, yeah. But I think that actually kind of, we were touching on some of the private money there as well, which is kind of like, 
the most elusive category, I think, because it will be wrapped up with some of the duchy stuff. Um, but also it goes back to that point I mentioned earlier about the fact that for 800 years, there was no delineation between the private and the public money. And so it's inevitable that some things that are considered private income for them now are jet traced back to money that they would have got from the taxpayer. So for like hundreds of years before the crown estate was handed over, they were able to buy houses and art and furniture and jewellery and all of these things with the money that they had. They didn't have to hand over all of this stuff with the crown estate. They only handed over the property portfolio, not all the things they bought with it over the years. There's some things that they have that are kind of like assets that are not part of the duchies because they're not like property um, and they're not government funded. And that's kind of what makes up their private wealth. So I'm thinking about things like King George VI very famously had a stamp collection. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, that sounds ridiculous, but I think it's it's like millions this stamp collection is worth. It's really, an, you know, it makes me want to collect stamps because it's it's a huge amount of money that he brought in to the point that it actually it does get mentioned separately as part of the Queen's assets is his like two million pound stamp collection or something. But also places like Balmoral, which they were able to purchase with their private funds, it's considered a private property. And there's obviously no restrictions on how they use this on, you know, if they have an art collection, if they want, if it's privately owned, they can sell some of it. Um, they don't have to report any of this to anyone. There's also things like inheritance. So William will have inherited money from his mother um, and other royals who came in from wealthy families will have brought in their own money that they can then pass down to people. It's another area that's tricky because can you say that a portrait that the royal family purchased in the era of King George II that has carried on and is still owned by, and is owned by Charles privately. Can you say that that is private, a private asset, when we know that George II would have been buying it with money that he got from the Crown Estate and is no longer considered part of their income? You know, it's it's sort of it's a tricky one. Yeah, it's really hard to sort of balance, and it kind of brings us back or it was reminded that slavery discussion when yeah, you're like yeah like personally I like I did not pay for that portrait and the royals didn't steal it from me but the money that that portrait was was bought with was the sovereign grant essentially in the form it was then it was you know taxpayer money that the money they'd taken off the farmers in the local area um because they were the king and they could do that and you know at what point like how far back do you as always my with everything like how far back do you go and you know you get you see those like really um right-wing people who are like well i want reparations from the romans for invading mm -hmm. the <laughs> roman era it's like that's not the same thing but it is a case like do i go back to to william the conqueror and think well what did you know do i get the bay of tapestry now is it mine yeah. <laughs> like, where, at what point do you draw the line? Because there is a direct relation between Charles and George II um, that I could track and say, actually, Charles, this was your great, 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 great granddad. And, you know, I always think that Oliver Cromwell era as well, they really just confused things because he took a lot of it and then some of it he gave back, but some of it he kept. So at what point, I mean, that was stolen, technically. <laughs> Where does the line get drawn? And this is the kind of thing that they would be, they would definitely indisputably be able to keep after if a monarchy was abolished, because we do, we can have the example of, of uh, King Constantine. And I know that, you know, that was Greece. It's a different place. 
but he took that to the European courts and they made the decision that it was wrong of the Greek state to confiscate some of the things that were privately owned by his family. And so I think things like the stamp collection, Balmoral, they would absolutely indisputably be able to keep them. I don't think that in a modern era, the government would, unless things drastically change and we regress to like revolutionary France, sort of, which might happen, who knows? Um, I think that it's indisputable that they would be able to keep those sorts of things. But when you look back, and it does become important when you're having conversations about things like slavery, because a lot of, you know, we talked about this a bit last week, but a lot of the people will say like, well, you know, Charles didn't enslave anybody personally, so what does it matter? If, you know, and he he shouldn't pay reparations because you know he's he didn't personally benefit. But but if you go back far enough, somebody in his ancestry will have made money through the slave trade, and it's very difficult to unpick how much of that is now with them today. It's always those you know investments as well. Like if Princess Anne was going to go and put a bunch of money you know in something she's not funded by the Duchy of Lancaster or the Duchy of Cornwall you know she probably has money from them but you know she's not funded by them and she's not she won't be using her sovereign grant money to an investment so it will be from you know selling a nice portrait she owns it's where her you know her racehorses will have come from her own private money and racehorses make you a lot of money but like at what point is the fact that I don't know I'm, I don't know why I'm using Anne as an example but right Princess Anne has made 74 million pounds this one year in you know I don't know how, how investment was in investing at what point do you go well actually the money she invested with is our money came, is my money yeah. <laughs> I mean that's 74 million pounds uh, where, where, do, where do you make that argument and there is no answer to it um and it's one of those things where like legally it's 100% their money like it's Anne's money I can't stop her doing whatever she wants with it um, but it's, it's a moral matter and I think it's one of those things a bit like with the duchies that is every individual person would have a different opinion on it and you can't really say anyone's wrong because depending on how you look at it everyone is right yeah and uh, there's that fact about the fact that um, the amount of money that was given to slave owners as compensation for the loss of the slaves was so great that everybody who paid tax before like I don't know 2015 or something um uh, was contributing to paying off that debt and so therefore was in a s- sort of weird roundabout way paying to compensate slave owner and that includes me I paid tax in that window and so I didn't have I didn't know that um, I wasn't part of it I wasn't involved um, but you know if we want to use that argument then all of us start to become complicit um, and so that I think that's why one of the reasons why a lot of people will avoid it because it's it's a more extreme example with the royals because their wealth is significantly more but we all sort of were part of this if we want to look back and try and think about it that way you know all of us then start to have difficult questions to answer but I think you were kind of mentioning there with like the racehorses and things that is another area that is private money which is royals are able to make money independently and I think this is something that would be worth an episode on its own to be honest but it's not, you know, this is like with Harry and Meghan, this is the thing that came up quite a bit and people often misunderstood it about like whether royals are allowed to make money or not. And they are, they are allowed to make their own money. Um, but you just have to be careful, especially if you're a working royal, about what you, how you make that money. So um, there's lots of rules. I'm not necessarily going to get into all of them because as I say, it's a separate episode. But there, you know, things like Anne has property. If she wants to rent out that property's back garden for a wedding, she can absolutely do that because it's she owns it. It's fine. It's not putting the monarchy into any kind of disrepute um, in the way that it would be if she decided to 
publicly endorse a company that was run by a very shady individual. That would be, you know, inappropriate, but she has a house, she can rent it out for nice, lovely weddings. Um, or she can breed horses. That's kind of seen as being a very sort of soft and, you know, inoffensive way to make money. Um, Charles can charge people for tickets to tour the grounds of Balmoral because that's his private home. And so that will then be his private money. And I think it's impossible to calculate these figures of how much wealth they all sort of make through these independent ventures that they have. The Sunday Times, Rich List, said that the Queen was worth £365 million. You do see wild figures thrown around. If you exclude the duchies and just look at the private wealth of the royals, even with all of these independent ventures that they might have or all of the assets that they've built up, they are never going to be the richest person in the room. They're going to be rich, but they'll never be the richest person in the room. And most of the wealth in the family is concentrated with the monarch and heir. Um, so somebody like Prince Edward, richer than me, definitely, doing all right, not saying poor Edward, but he's not like personally got hundreds of millions of pounds in the bank. And I think that's a misconception that you get around the royals. Yeah, and I know, you know, people can bring it out but like oh look at their you know particularly with the boys and they're falling apart mm-hmm. shoes all the time yeah. like, oh, but they're so rich why are their shoes falling apart <laughs> and yes they have enough money to buy shoes but you know I always think the Wessex is such a good example because Louise and James are getting to adulthood now um so they're not dependent well Luke James is but Louise is not officially dependent on her children on her children on her parents but I mean I'm 26 I still live at home and that's not a problem for anyone because my parents aren't funded by the taxpayers. And, you know, I am literally living off my parents. It was private wealth, which is, you know, the money they made working in their lifetimes. Yeah, yeah. You know, my, my salary and their salaries is how we live. And it's the same in a weird way for, you know, Louise and James and Edward and Sophie, because they, I'm sure Edward and Sophie have, you know, got some nice portraits around the house that are worth lots of money. But at the same time, you know, when Louise had to buy school shoes growing up, chances are some of that money came from the money that uh, Edward and Sophie made when they set up their own businesses or worked in, you know, their own jobs. Um, So at what point do you go, no, Louise, you can't live in this special house anymore? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically, the summary of this is it's all incredibly complicated. And while it seems on the surface that there's this private money, there's this public money, and it's all very clean and neat, actually, it is just a cluster <laughs> um, that is so messy and nobody can decipher it. And um, so I think we might have left people with more questions than than they had at the beginning, to be honest. Honestly, I had more questions than when I started. When I started, I was like, oh, I know this. Like, yeah. I know the facts and I know my opinions. And the more research, as I do every week, I'm like, I don't know my opinion anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> so the reason that we did our deep dive into royal finances after all this time is because the uh, report came out at the end of June. Um, and it's always a thrilling read. It's a good, like, 100-odd pages. 132, um, I looked at it last night. Yep. <laughs> There's a really nice bit at the beginning, I'm just going to say, of the, the uh, report, where they talk about, like, the role of the monarch. Mm. And they do that thing that you always, always reminds me of you, where they're like, we in Britain, we don't have a constitution. So we have yeah. all these, like, traditions and rules yeah. that are just as important. <laughs> yes, that is true. Well done, monarch. You know what you're doing. I secretly wrote this report. Yeah, yeah it's actually just by you. Yeah. Um, but essentially, so it runs from the financial year, which is from April the 1st, 2022 to March the 31st, 2023. So it covered the Platinum Jubilee, 
the death of the queen, the accession of Charles, but not the coronation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm so excited for next year. So there's going to be yeah. this massive lumping. <laughs> um, and it's it's really interesting because it does have all these sort of key facts in it. Like it mentions that there were 2,710 visits in the UK, the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth realms um, in that financial year. It mentions the four trips there were that were not in the uh, Commonwealth, uh, you know, in the financial year. It also gives you all the staff information, not like every single step by step one. It's not like, oh, I now know who Sophie's hairdresser is. You know who the big players are and percentages of like male, female, um, black minority ethnic, uh, not black minority ethnic. And there's a few sort of like highlights, shall we say, from last year. The significant issue that is happening at the moment with the royal finances and the royal from uh, finances from last year, the sovereign grant, was that they did not have enough money in the 15% sovereign grant to cover all the expenditures that they needed. Mm. Thanks to the fact they are um, resurfacing Buckingham Palace, not redecorating. Yes. They are resurfacing. No curtains. <laughs> no curtains going in. Um, because essentially it is like, structurally unstable and um, it's I just imagine it's going to collapse if they didn't do this or something I don't really understand it and as they are sort of going through Buckingham Palace and you know rewiring it so it doesn't catch on fire they're obviously noticing other massive issues like they'll take a wall out to sort out a wire and they'll be like um guys this wall is rotten so then they have to add that onto it um and they've been doing these Buckingham Palace refurbishment for what feels like forever it's a couple of years and it's not going to be finished for another few years um, and it is costing a lot. That's all good building projects do. <laughs> but it's where it's sort of where a significant portion of the money needs to go. And why all of the sovereign grants of the last few uh, reports of the last few years have been like, this is how much money they've had from sovereign grant, plus this other thirty million pounds that we've had to give them to mend this big house kind of going back to what we said earlier that none of this is actually going into their personal pockets to be spent on race cars I don't know what people (laughs) rich people buy to spend their money on but you know nothing's going towards stuff like that it's and we are the owners of Buckingham Palace and so if there are renovations that need to be done to um or whatever you call it to Buckingham Palace that we're the landlord essentially and so we have to pay those costs if you look at it it looks really bad Uh, like I think they got in about 87 million and spent about 106 million. And you see a lot of people like with the Royal Foundation's accounts being like, oh, they spent more money than they brought in. Isn't this terrible? They're now in debt. And like, that's not how it works. If you if you have your first paycheck and it's a thousand pounds and you spend 1500 pounds, you're in debt and that is bad. But if you get a paycheck every month for six months and then one month you decide to go on holiday and you spend 1500 pounds, you should have money from savings that you didn't spend in previous months that you can draw from. And so you're not actually in debt overall. It's just that particular month, you might look like you're in debt. And so with the sovereign grant, they have, yes, they have spent 20 million pounds more than they have. If you look at the reserves, they took 20 million pounds out of their reserves. So that's what happened. <laughs> they had the money. It's just that they saved it from previous years where they hadn't spent it. And now they're spending it now. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we mentioned, like right at the beginning, the sovereign grant comes from those sort of two years prior. And two years ago, there was a pandemic. So this, you know, this is going to be, you know, this is kind of the the first year where it would have hit the income 
and you can see that if you look at the income it does say in there like the income made and it's decreased and it talks about how it's still improving from 2020 but it's still lower than pre-pandemic levels yes that's because so something we didn't really touch on because it's complicated but the sovereign grant doesn't drop um so the 50 million pounds they got will not drop it cannot drop legally but they also supplement that income with some money from like the royal collections and that money has dropped so they're yes the they have been hit by what happened well i think you know we're hitting this point there was a part sort of midway through the report where they were talking about how they don't think they're going to be kind of back on a level footing until 2025 2026 financial year so until like after March the 31st 2026 um and I think you know on one level you can be like well that's ages and we've all had to you know get back on our feet and there's a cost of living crisis but at the same time this is like the monarchy and it's a really big thing it's not just the seven people that we occasionally see do engagements we see Princess Alexandra do two a year or whatever she does you know it's the whole head of state head of nation conundrum it's the palaces it's the staff it's the gardens it's the cafe you know and it's the engagements and the tours and the visits and all of those things which is really big and it is actually really hard to once you've taken that kind of initial hit because you know for two years they didn't make money on their cafes I don't know why I keep bringing up the cafes. I don't know how much money they make in their cafes. (laughs) I don't even know how many cafes they have. I've never been to Buckingham Palace. I don't know if they have a lot of cafes, but... (laughs) But anyway, any of these cafes. And it's something that's happening in other royal families. I know that in the Swedish royal family, they were very transparent about the fact that they lost a huge amount of income because nobody was able to visit their palace in in Stockholm. So, you know, I'm not saying feel sorry for them um, and their poor little royals with no money because this doesn't impact them personally they can still go on holiday as much as they want but um you know it is a notable thing I think that even though the pandemic to some people might seem like it's over it's still financially having cost implications for things like the monarchy yeah and then you know the next kind of section which is always my favorite section in any of these reports is the travel section because they talk about like they don't talk about every single journey they'd make because we would never hear the end of it and then we just keep going But they kind of say, you know, there's kind of five key ways that royals travel. So obviously by car, by royal train, by chartered air flights, which are the ones that they take from military bases, from scheduled air flights, which is just your average commercial plane, um, and by helicopter. And there is obviously others. Sometimes they go on normal trains, but they don't count for some reason. They probably do count, but they don't do them enough to count. They're not that expensive. Yeah. And then within those, they count the sort of the key journeys and then they only count journeys that cost more than a certain percentage so in the 2021 to 2022 one it was over 15,000 pounds and in this report it was over 17,000 pounds so there were only 31 journeys that were over 17,000 pounds and only three that were over 71,000 pounds we're being really specific um, <laughs> very odd <cutter. laughs> but it's it's really interesting because I went through obviously I went through them all um and I was looking at how they break them down and there were only four royal train journeys that probably in general but that cost over that amount um and you know two of them were with Charles and two of them were with the late queen but then the ones that really stood out were the three big ones were the Charles and Camilla's visit to the Commonwealth heads of state general meeting in Rwanda last year which felt like a very short trip to me, mm. but cost £187,000. The German state visit, which cost £146,000. And 
the um, Edinburgh's back when they were the Wessexes, their trip to St. Lucia, St. Saint Vincent and Antigua, which cost £85,000. And, you know, there's quite a big drop between those three trips and the next biggest one, which was the Boston trip. Um, and then all the others tend to be around 20, 30,000, which is still a lot of money for like a trip uh, from, I don't know, mm. Edinburgh to Norfolk. I don't understand why it costs so much to get from Edinburgh. It doesn't not cost me that much and I have to pay train fares. Like, <laughs> it does not cost that much money. Um, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where it really, you know, you're looking and I don't know how long Charles and Camilla sent in Rwanda, but it was only a couple of days. And I know it's, they, you know, they were going to Rwanda and they had to take a lot of staff with them and they were going as the future heads of the Commonwealth at that point because they were still the Prince of Wales and Duke, uh, Duchess of Cornwall. But it was £187,000. What was that money being spent on? I don't understand. You wouldn't have thought that the amount of people on the plane would change the cost of chartering a plane. Because you've still got you still got the plane whether there's one person on it or 30 people on it it was yeah it was really interesting because I then went through it and I was like well how many sort of trips are on what and most of their trips on charter planes are either going to Scotland for some reason they need to fly a military plane to Scotland whenever they go abroad they tend to take charter it's not always like when the Cambridges at the time Wellsers went to Boston they didn't um they took a scheduled air flight so how did that cost 30,000 I don't know (laughs) And then there's really odd journeys, like Charles took a charter plane from Oxford to Wick. Why? <laughs> I don't understand. I was just so confused by these journeys. Oh, it took me for, I was just, this is my bulk of my research, just because I was getting really confused by how it cost, you know, £187,000 to fly 10 people to Rwanda and back. Yeah, because I think the chartered plane thing is is like, it's so outside of my world that I don't know how much a chartered plane costs. Maybe it does cost 170 or 180,000 pounds to charter a plane to Rolanda. I truly do not know. It's the commercial one. That William and Kate one has really done me in because 30,000 pounds for it. And they went on a normal plane. Like, unless they booked their ticket the morning of. I don't know how <laughs> it could be that expensive. <laughs> They have to pay off some people to get on that flight. They're like, look, I need your ticket. I'll give you £10,000. Every time, you know, people go and complain a lot about royals not going abroad, which is a whole different kettle of fish and not necessarily royals' fault because, you know, it's got a bit in there about how there are trips that are from the monarch as a head of state, which is doing the Commonwealth trips. There are visits, which are as part of a a job, essentially, you know, like the uh, Earthshot Prize visits. And then you have your trips arranged by the office. So the foreign correspondence, diplomatic something office where they do um, those trips. And they're not happening at the moment because they're not asking for them because they cost a lot of money. But I just, it is a significant amount of money and it is just the travel. It's not, you know, the security of the flight or the the cost of Charles and Camilla's outfits when they Oh, the tiara. Maybe this is tiara travel. That's what it is. They had to take tiaras on these two flights. I've solved it. It's the tiara. It's the chartered flight for the tiara on a cushion. If <laughs> he's on a cushion in the British royal family, they have to just go really slowly so nothing happens. To the tiara. <laughs> okay, so I've solved this problem now. It's the tiaras. But it, you know, if you know, think back to twenty. 16 when everyone was going on two major flights so you know major tours a year and lots of mini flights as well that's going to add up massively and I can see why in a period where maybe there isn't as much money they hold back on the uh, international travel and the flights from Wick to Oxford 
still don't know why he did that. And then they have their kind of, their just other sort of fun section. I skipped a lot of it because a lot of it's really boring, I'm not going to lie. Um, but then the other sort of big fun section really is the engagement section because it's very short and sweet. Um, and they only really talk about the monarchs and, and their uh, spouses. So they mentioned that the Queen did 201 engagements before she no longer was Up with us. So from... That was a much more diplomatic way you phrased it. <laughs> I was going to say pop clogs and I held back and then you just filled it in. <laughs> they talked about how many engagements Charles did. So it was from March. So it's not the same sort of set. Because we, we always look at them as yearly. Yeah, they yeah. look at it financial yearly. And you know what really threw me was that in the period of time when the Queen, who we never saw, did 201 engagements, Charles only did 205 in that same period. Oh. I felt like we saw Charles all the time. They're he's wrong. done more since. Like He's done significantly more since he's been King Charles. But he only did 205, and I just... I don't believe them, yeah. Obviously, Camilla's uh, slightly lighter schedule of only 82 in that period, and only 131 since. Um, but, it, you know, they have their sort of how much they do, and then they go through, like, how many receptions have there been, and how many investitures have there been, and how many dinners have there been. Um, and then it had this sort of key cost section, and they only really put out the ones that cost a lot of money, the big ones, which were only two things um, last year. So the Platinum Jubilee which cost 0.7 million in total or 0.3 million specifically last year, because I'm sure a lot of it was in advance. And I'm sure this does not include the uh, security of this event, but you know. Or the military, any military presence. And then the funeral, which was 1.6 million in total, which yeah. it's actually not as much as I thought it would be, even yeah. removing the sort of security. I thought that was going to be like 10 million. I don't know how much things cost in rich people. No, I've got so no. Yeah, 10 million for us a funeral. <laughs> Sounds about right. Um, but yeah, and I think, you know, the most interesting thing for me next year is going to be you've got the coronation in there and, you know, and the coronation events and the not a coronation they had in Scotland. That was definitely not a coronation in any way. <laughs> like, the Scottish coronation thing is not a coronation. No. Did he put um, the crown on? No. No. <laughs> not a coronation. Just looked at a crown on a pillow. Yeah. We've already covered this. I had a whole episode. It's called No Crown, No Coronation. <laughs> It's Come in the guys. title. You don't even have to listen to the episode. <laughs> Just read it. It was essentially, it was saying like, it mentioned there quite a few times that it was not a normal year because they had the Platinum Jubilee, which would have been weird anyway. And then they had the death of a queen and the funeral of the queen. And they had to have a new monarch and all of the changes that happened to the staff because of that. And this is a really big section in there that I'm not going to go into because it's really boring. Um, but it was all about how they had to essentially take all of Charles's staff and either fire them or make them redundant or blend them into the Buckingham Palace staff and then they had staff there that they no longer needed and they had this real balancing act and there was that period of time where they were essentially running two households in that kind of immediate aftermath of the Queen dying mm. um, for one person because they were still running the Clarence House one for about a week and they were running obviously Buckingham pa uh, the Buckingham Palace one and they had to work together because they were still pulling together all these different resources um and it's 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 interesting because we're not going to see that year again ever but specific you know even with the sort of the death and the accession uh, of the king for another 20 25 30 years yeah so they're never going to have that exact period again but yeah and it's 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 like it's, it's a really boring document in many ways but it's also really interesting because it's it's the one time of the year where they are kind of remotely Transparent. slightly transparent <laughs> about finances yeah. and also they talk about things like you know 
these are our three HR goals over the next year or these are the goals of the monarchy for the next year like a improvement plan yeah um and it's it's just quite fun to think about them sitting down with Charles or the Queen and being like right so what are our aims in the next 12 months guys can we like spider diagram this get a pin board it's one of those things where it's like on one hand it's really boring but it also really sort of grounds sort of everything we've spoken mm. about in mm. this episode because it, it just it feels very kind of like airy fairy is not the right word but I can't think of a word to describe what my hands yeah. are doing right now but very <laughs> kind of highbrow um, and fancy to talk about you know like the financial situation of the monarch in the 1300s but it is impacting what you know the how the royals are getting money to fly to Rwanda in 2022 and there's a real tangible link and it's how you can be like well actually I can complain about Charles spending £187,000 flying to Rwanda still not sure why how that happened Um, (laughs) but you know maybe I won't complain about Kate buying five matching dresses that are all equally ugly in different outfit different colours because that's from the Duchy of Cornwall or I'm not going to complain about Charles and having a racehorse because that's even more private money and you know it gives you essentially like this is what you can complain about in this little border <laughs> and everything else you've got to sort of make your own mind up about but you can complain about this because we wrote about it um so that is all we have got for this week i hope you enjoyed it if you have any more questions feel free to ask them i'm sure at some point we will deep dive into the other aspects of finance which we didn't even start to touch on in this les- uh, lesson in this podcast episode that's the teacher in you but also it kind of was a lesson yeah we, we talked to you about finance yeah. guys feel free to listen to all of our other episodes and rate us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts and even where you don't listen to them <laughs> yeah. um and until we return it is goodbye from me and goodbye from me 